Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the show that looks for ways to better cope with daily stresses. Today, I'm meeting Dr Julie. Your brain learns through experience, so if you can stay in a situation until your body pretty much exhausts itself, so it habituates to the situation, then your brain clocks one bit of evidence that, hey, I can be in this situation and I survive it. So the next time you then go into that situation, your, your anxiety still goes up, but it's a tiny bit less because you've got this evidence that you can get through it. And so the more you do that, the more that the, the response, you know, the stress response gets less and less each time. Dr. Julie is a clinical psychologist and a social media sensation. I absolutely love her videos. She's incredibly fun and engaging, but she also really quickly gets to the heart of mental health struggles we might be having and equips her millions of followers with new tools and understanding. And that straightforward education is just so valuable at a time when access to therapy and mental health services is so incredibly difficult for so many. Her book, Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before, follows the same sort of ideas. It's basically all the secrets from a therapist toolkit that arm you with the skills you need to get through life's ups and downs. And it is important to allow the down days to happen. That's something we talk a lot about in this chat, actually, whether we should be aiming to be happy all the time or if anxieties or fears can actually sometimes serve us. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Okay, let's do it. Here's the show. Dr. Julie. Hi. Oh, it's so lovely to have you here today. It's amazing to be here. It's really nice to come meet you. I know, a long time coming because yes. I've been sort of watching what you're doing and I think we're on a very similar mission, although coming from different angles. Yours, obviously, from a clinical psychologist angle. I don't know quite what my angle is, I guess, sort of like telling stories and listening to other people's stories. But I think we both very much want to help the sort of mental health issues that we see are very prevalent at the moment. Yeah. Would you go as far to say that we are in a mental health crisis at the moment? Um, I think it gets talked about a lot, doesn't it, in that mm. way? And, and I think anything that's talked about in the media, they attach the word crisis or chaos to it. And that always kind of gets me. But there's a big problem, for sure. And it's not going away. And we need to talk about it and we need to work out what needs to happen in order for things to change. I think it is worse than it was, but I think we have this tendency to kind of maybe talk about things as a crisis w without the data kind of thing. And it's not that helpful, is it, to go, crisis, deal with that? Because it just feels like this huge, yeah. insurmountable issue. Yeah. 
And all of us are kind of in it and trying to work out what the hell's going on. And I'm pretty sure we can all see the systemic problems, the structural issues that we're all trying to deal with with how fast the world moves. And I think that is just a huge one. We're not even looking at how quickly everything is moving. And I think all of us feel this sense of... Like I said to my husband yesterday, I want to get off. Like the roundabout's going too quick. I I want to get off. It's Everything's moving so quickly. And I think like most people feel like I'm just chasing my tail constantly. And although that's not the, the main cause for all issues, it's I think it's quite basic things like that that are really troubling many of us. Yeah, and I think those are quite small things in our day as well that add up. The shift from back in the day when you used to go into work and there would be a pile of post that came arrived that day and that was what you had to deal with that day and you could you could do that in you know a certain amount of time and then nobody else could send you a letter that day right? <laughs> take me back you then had the rest of your day to do what you had to do but now there's this sense of uh, you know if you miss an email if you're a parent and the school sent an email at 4 p.m. that day for something that's tomorrow then somehow you should have been on your email to get there and and reply to it or do whatever it is you need to do. You know, there's this kind of sense that we're always available and we should be. And that just triggers so much stress and, and anxiety because you can't be, right? You can't be ultra productive, which demands focus, and be available to everyone all the time. It's impossible to do both. It is, but it's so the norm that we have to basically buck against so many trends. Yeah. To simply stay sane, we have to go, all right, I'm not going to move at that pace. I'm not going to be on my phone, on my laptop all day. I'm not going to put the expectation on myself that I have to be the best parent, the best worker if you work, have the most exciting, glitzy social life, which is presented to us. We're, we're bombarded with it. And I think we do have to sort of buck these trends to... I mean, this is, I'm sort of talking quite passionately, I guess, from a place of, you know, this is how I feel, that I have to buck against all of it to just feel okay. Yeah, yeah. And I think there is, in some ways, that's the power of social media. Social media can be sort of reinforce some of those trends, but it also enables you to kind of have access to people that are bucking the trend. So it kind of gives you permission to, yeah. Go, oh, yeah, okay, it's okay not to join that thing or, or you know make 100 cupcakes for the school fate every month, you know, because apparently you should have that time or, you know, all those kind of silly things that we can kind of get into that pressure. Sometimes having access to people who have a different opinion, I think can be really helpful. I do. I think it's really inspiring. And I don't mean for that to sound cheesy, but I do think it is. You go, oh, it's there is there are other options out there. Yeah. I mean, I literally felt like this weekend I was in an episode of Motherland. Like everything <laughs> that was everything that happened in my house this weekend, I was like, Motherland, we are in Motherland. It's just it's the most accurate. It's funny because it's true, right? It's so true. <laughs> it's unbelievably true that show. I love it. Um with the patients that you see and that you've seen over the years do you notice specific trends or reoccurring themes with the problems that people are presenting to you? Obviously, the anecdotes, the storytelling will be different. But are there themes that, that always kind of correlate and, and show why people are in pain? Yes, in, in the sense that no matter what the specific problems, it always seems um, hard to imagine or hard to understand until you've heard somebody's story. Once you hear... The, the traumas that people have been through and the, the different things they've had to face in their life, you then get to a point where, of course, you feel this way. Why wouldn't you? 
What you know, it, it makes sense. So I guess yeah, trauma is one of those in its various disguises. So that doesn't have to be sort of war zone type traumas. It can be sort of learning in your early childhood that then doesn't fit with your adult life and the demands that place on you as an adult. But I think probably the trend that it, it ended up in me writing the book and and putting videos online was this trend of people who were coming along to therapy. By this time, I was working privately. So people who come along to therapy, really struggling with self-confidence, lots of self-doubt. And, and there's this kind of um, these thoughts around, I won't be able to cope with it. So there's this kind of fear of the future or anything that the future holds or any new situation because they didn't believe in their ability to cope with it. And that was linked with this kind of lack of a set of skills, you know, the tools that you use to get through difficult moments. And and that's where I felt like these lots of these people didn't need long-term therapy. Once they had the, the educational aspect of that, so a few tools and a bit of understanding around how the mind works and, and that we have more influence over emotions than we think, they were raring to go. And it, mm. I mean, I, even now, I kind of feel almost emotional kind of sitting and, and sort of remembering some of those sort of people. Uh, one young girl in particular, she said, you know what, I think... I think I'll be all right. I think I can do this. And she was about to sort of face something difficult. And, um, you know, I always felt like I needed some pom-poms behind my therapy chair to go, yes, we got that. You know, this idea that that it wasn't magic. It wasn't rocket science. She has suddenly had a few tools under her belt that she felt like it was going to be difficult, but she could face it. And it's that that really kind of got me fired up. And, and then I would, you know, harp on to my poor husband to say, People should have access to this. It shouldn't. People shouldn't have to pay to come and see people like me to find out how their own brain works. And um, so, yeah. I mean, that's very much where the title came from. Yeah. Why has nobody told me this before? Your hugely selling book that is just packed with all of this stuff because we don't learn the basics. We don't have the tools. And I'm sure there are many reasons as to why it's certainly not implemented in a school system setting. It might not be the priority for parents to go, let me teach you this because you are quite literally surviving daily with kids and getting them through the day, getting yourself through the day. So is therapy or learning therapeutic tools the only way we're going to get it? I don't know. Will it change for the next generation? Will it be taught in schools? Will parents prioritise it more? I think this sort of... Um, the kind of arc of history kind of changes gradually, doesn't it? So every positive change that we make will filter down and and then uh, we won't do everything perfectly and then our children won't do everything perfectly but they'll make positive changes too and and I think then things change gradually through the generations don't they and mm. and so I feel positive about it all the while that people like yourself are kind of doing really positive things and, and opening that conversation and and talking about your own experiences and the things that you've learned along the way and sharing that that's just absolutely key to to helping people learn from each other and you know that's the beauty isn't it of, of all of this yeah. stuff podcasts and and books and online videos you just have access to the possibility to self-reflect and learn from it if you want to. And we all need it. This is the thing. There's still so much weird stigma around therapy. Yeah. You know, there's always headlines about certain people who they've had to go to therapy. And it's like, this should be so normal at this point in time that we understand it isn't for SOS moments. It isn't for I'm absolutely rock bottom. It can be. I've certainly gone to therapy for those exact reasons. But also it can be general maintenance. And like you say, learning these tools. And I think there's so many sort of uh, problems, I guess, with, with how we talk about therapy. One of them is 
the stigma. And the other is in this weird, quick modern world we're living in, the quick fix is what everybody wants. And it's why there's a whole industry around well-being or self-improvement, whatever term you want to use. I don't particularly love that term, but there is there's a huge industry around that and people wanting to be fixed. And like you've just said, having the tools, that's not a quick fix. That's you then use those tools, I guess, in a disciplined way forever. And that's hard work. Yeah. Yeah. And it is it's ongoing work. But I think that can feel quite positive sometimes, can't it? That yeah. There's, there's it's empowering. continued self-discovery. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that it's something you continue to work on and... You know, because there are—I mean, I, you know, know all the tools and and I've, I've studied all the the books, but there are still times when, you know, my childhood will play out, and I don't use the tools, and then I have to remind myself and go back. And so, I mean, I always want to be really clear on that with with you know being online and that kind of thing. The people say, "Oh, you must—it must be perfect for you. You must never have problems, or you must never get it wrong." And and it's just not true. You know, this isn't a path to you know, being invincible to mm. life's troubles, or it doesn't mean that you're going to get everything perfect all the time. It's a set of tools. Sometimes you'll use them. Sometimes you won't. Sometimes you use them and not to great effect. And sometimes you use them and it'll go brilliantly. And you'll be so, you know, you'll feel that kind of yes. But without them, you have much less power to make things go well. So, um, mm. And it's the most human thing to not use the tools that you know work. Like, yeah. you know, I know... All these brilliant people now, and I've learned so much from doing the podcast, the books that I've written, or when we're doing the festival meeting, all these amazing you know, healers and whatever. And I know that meditation is going to make me feel calmer and ease my anxiety. And I know that certain breath work's going to help, or whatever it might be. Some days, like Friday, I think I had four seconds sleep. I literally had the most horrific night of insomnia. My son had been up all night. Friday, I didn't do anything that was positive or moving me in the right direction. I did everything to make myself feel worse. And I know all this stuff. So I think it's really important to say it because I think people do have an assumption that, you know, within your work or within my work that we're just, it's all, we're breezing through it, blah, blah, blah. You might know the stuff, but you've still got to put the effort in to use it and to implement it. And like you say in the book, the basics are boring they're boring, but they bloody work. Yeah, yeah. Your mum was right when she used to tell you all that, you know, eat right and get to bed on time, mm. all those things. It's because it, it, it's true. It, yeah. work, it just works. What are the basics? So sleep, eating well. Yeah. What else would you class as a basic, a boring basic? Yeah, so an old supervisor of mine used to call it the solid back four. He was really into football and, and he said, you know, if you don't want a goal scored against your team in football, you need four really solid defence players. And I would kind of add another one and I say kind of probably a solid back five. In mental health, you got uh, sleep, yeah, so sleeping at the right times, not too much, not too little, nutritional intake, so eating things that are going to help you um, rather than, and, and again, not too little, not too much, not not at the wrong times during the night, that kind of thing. Routine. Yeah. So we, we, we're kind of strange creatures in that we need predictability to a degree and we need routine, but we also need exploration and adventure. So kind of balance of those things. Exercise, moving your body, it's what we were built to do. The research is just, you know, there's piles and piles of it on that. And social contact and, and good quality social connection. And they are the basics in that they're often the things that when you introduce them to someone, they'll say, yeah, yeah, I do that. And But they are without a doubt the first things that we let slide when we're not feeling so good. 
you know, you don't pick up the phone to your friend or you say no to that invitation or you, you know, eat something that is, you know, will make you feel terrible. And, and we kind of start to sort of minimize the impact that those things can have. And you take anyone on the server, I don't care who they are, you start messing around with those five things, that person will become vulnerable very quickly to physical and mental illness. And it's a reason why they're the tools that are used against uh, like prisoners of war and things like that. They're the exact things that they mess around with to, to break people down. And so, I mean, I often encourage people to, you know, in therapy to just keep an eye on them. So it's not that you have to do them perfectly all the time. And it's okay to have a day where, you know, like you say, you've had a terrible night's sleep and so you might take a nap in the day, even though you know that's not the best idea for you most of the time. But actually, maybe today you just need a rest. You know, that's that kind of thing. So it's not to kind of be perfectionist about it, but maybe you kind of just pop those five things on a post-it note inside your wardrobe door and you just look at them, just glance at them every day and say, what's one thing I could do to boost one of those today? So maybe it's, I've eaten pizza all last week because I was uh, away on holiday. And this week I'm going to add some greens into what I eat. Or maybe, actually I haven't spoken to my friends for three weeks. I'm going to make a call tomorrow. Or, you know, whatever it is. It can be something small, but each day you're just checking in, saying, what what could I do to, to boost those? Because they are like a foundation. And without them, things can crumble very quickly when, you know, life throws stuff at us and we don't, we can't control a lot of the stuff that, uh, you know, people say, oh, eliminate your stress and things like that. And you <laughs> How? Can't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, um, and Brene Brown talks about that fantastically when she says, you know, stress is waiting for that test result from your doctor or those kind of things. It's the things that you can't control, yeah. right? That's real stress. And while we can't stop those things from happening, that's where the foundations come in. That if you're looking after yourself, you're going to be much more able to to deal with those punches when they come along. It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's hugely empowering to know that if we get the foundations right, we're going to stand in much better stead to deal with what life throws at us. Yet, sometimes, circumstantially, things are happening out of our control and it could be something ghastly. And that will directly affect one of those foundations. It could be the stress of that is stopping you from sleeping or something's triggered an eating disorder that you might have had in the past or are still living with or whatever. How do you combat that? Do you have to look at the circumstance and look to do the healing to then fix the foundation? Uh, yeah, it's a bit like, you know, you have, when you have a baby, isn't it? Their the sleep is just out the window yeah. for, and it's a bit of a fallacy that it's for a few weeks. It's for a few years. Uh, right? My son's only 10 and <laughs> still <laughs> doesn't <laughs> sleep. Yeah, my son was up last <laughs> night. And uh, yeah, so you, it's the sort of, when one of those foundations is affected through something out of your control, uh, you have to, there's kind of a level of acceptance that needs to happen around that rather than getting down on yourself about it not being perfect at that time and bolstering yourself in other ways. So kind of, you know, that's why things like social support are so important for new mums, because it's another boost of one of those foundations that keeps us going, that if you've only slept for two hours that night, having a, a, a you know, a comforting conversation with a friend is everything, right? Yeah. Uh, and stops you from kind of spiralling down. And so, yes, if if something else is happening that's kind of making it difficult to maintain all of those foundations, that's why we have to have a balance in all of them, I think. And you also make a very valid point in those times where things feel off. In the book, you say, don't kick yourself while you're down, which I think we're probably all in a really bad habit of doing that because of this strange level of perfection that we think we're seeing constantly and that if we're getting something wrong, we're to then pile on top of that 
blame and shame and everything else. And it's so important to be kind to yourself, which is often the hardest thing to do in those moments is to have all the stuff again we know is good for us. Self-compassion and identifying your own self-worth and just being kind to yourself. Yeah, and, and often in therapy, when when we kind of talk about that sort of subject, the people that you're talking to about that are often the most compassionate, empathic, caring people. To others. To others. <laughs> so it all goes out. You know, often yeah. talk to people about it's like sun rays. It all goes out. So we're not starting from scratch. You know how to do it. We just have to redirect that. And so, yeah, it's the, the way that I would use most to sort of access self-compassion is to think about, is to sort of engage with those feelings of compassion that I have for others. So I might think of my daughter or my son, for example, and that's sort of how I would want to respond to them when they're down or when they, you know, when something has happened and how I would want them to have the strength to behave towards themselves in those moments. And then that enables you to engage with the feeling so that you can then begin to apply that to yourself. But yeah, it's it's everything. Yeah, I mean, I've done so many sort of post on Instagram about this because I think it's something that I've definitely struggled with personally and still if I'm having a bit of a bad patch it will be the first thing that just goes to shit my self-compassion or and and the response I get normally is you know some people are going yeah I really want to cultivate this and you know really know that it's going to help and I can feel that it's going to help and then you always get probably half and half half the portion of people who have seen the post saying I just can't do it I don't like myself and it feels like a dead end like there's just no way out of that feeling usually due to stories from the past and I can certainly relate that to myself there was there were certain periods of my life where I felt how could I like myself after having been through this or having acted like this or usually it's related to mistakes isn't it mistakes you've made bad choices etc how would you suggest people get over that ginormous hurdle I think there are no quick fixes when it's like that. So you, you can uh, enhance a skill by using some of these exercises. But when there is something in the past that has fundamentally shifted the way that you view yourself or the way that you view the world, there's you know no quick fix that's going to suddenly change your beliefs about yourself. And and so that's when therapy can be really helpful to go through. And sometimes that can you know trauma therapy can be necessary to to go back and sort of rewrite some of those narratives and and work through and process some of those wounds you know when it's really kind of big events in your life or or learning experiences that happened over because also i think people imagine that a trauma is maybe one big event and when they can't find one of those they're wondering whether the rest of it counts as a trauma mm. but but trauma can happen where in small elements of time small pieces of time in just how you were brought up. So your learning experiences as a child or the society that you lived in, for example, or how you were discriminated against or whatever that, you know, whatever the circumstances are, trauma can happen in little tiny pieces over time that chips away at what you believe about yourself and or what you believe about the world. Then you get into adulthood and, and it holds you back hugely. You know, it's a survival response that helps you to get by when you're dependent on other people but as an adult it then holds you back from being able to function properly and I guess we react in the same way again and again to the point where we believe well this is just me this is how I 
react to certain situations. This is, there is no changing. That's just who I am. Do you believe it's always possible for somebody to to change that pattern and that reaction? Yeah, and, and cognitive analytic therapy is fantastic for that. And I, it, it's really about understanding that the, the cycles that you were in as a child and your sort of key relationships with caregivers and things and how the way that you responded to people was part of your survival mechanism. So it helped you to get through whatever difficult environment that was. And then that's key learning. So we then go around those same cycles as an adult. But in adult relationships, the dynamics are different and the responsibilities are different. And suddenly those things that were really effective at helping you get through a difficult situation as a child no longer work or actually cause you more problems. And you see that with things like people pleasing. You know, people will put every and it's more than just being a nice person right it's putting everybody else first even to the detriment of your own health and well-being to the point where it causes problems in your own health but also like resentment in relationships and things like that and struggling to assert your own needs or ask for what your needs to be met and in in, in cat therapy cat therapy for short so it's cognitive analytic therapy you kind of does it involve cats <laughs> yeah no it'd be great yeah, if it did wouldn't that would it? really help me <laughs> yeah. I think it would be so probably a great research <laughs> experiment, wouldn't it, to kind of yeah, look at whether that enhanced the effects. But yeah, so it's really about, you, you literally kind of draw out the cycles of, you know, this happens, then I do this, and the consequence, the unintended consequence that it leads to now. And by doing that, by understanding, you get that sort of bird's eye view on your life where you get to see that, okay, I'm doing this because of that sort of echo of the past, but it leads to this. And then I go round and round in the cycle. Where's the exit? How do I get off? What could I do differently? And it all works in hindsight. So you're talking about what happened last week or the week before. But the more you do that, the more you start to sort of almost visualize that bird's eye view, that formulation in the moment. And when you start to do that, you open this kind of window of opportunity to maybe choose something different and yeah. break the cycle. Sometimes you will, sometimes you won't. But again, that's kind of changes slow and stuff But it's like the that. awareness that you can, isn't it? Because yeah. I think it's quite humbling to go, oh, look at this piece of paper, I'm quite simple. Yeah. I do that, that and that every time and then it ends in a pile of shit. <laughs> and then you go, oh, I don't have to do that. And it's, yeah. that, you know, even making changes is humbling. She's like, oh my God. Especially if you've created an infrastructure in your life where you believe it could be this person's awful, that person causes me pain and I'm always the victim. You know, obviously there are people that out there who are victims of terrible things and abuse and injustice. But I'm talking about in everyday life, we'll pit ourselves against other people and that's the story that works for us. And I think as soon as you start to see your reactions and it is a very humbling exercise, you can then go, but is that the way it works? Does it have to be like that? Yeah. And that's difficult because when you've labelled someone the enemy or a situation the cause of all your pain and it doesn't have to be, that's quite a difficult transition to make, I think, isn't it? It's a healthy one, but it's very hard. Yeah, and, and a lot of these things happen very gradually and maybe that's some of the frustration people have with the idea of something like therapy is that it does take time. And and, and I think that's a, a big element of why it's less available because it is a, is not the quick fix it, it takes time and but all change that is sustainable takes time and so you know we'll often work on a very small part of something and then you kind of nail that bit and then you work on the next small part of it and the next small part of it and so over time transformation is is fantastic and so often you know when I'm working with someone we'll look back at the beginning 
and how things were. And then you can really get that sense of, wow, yes, actually we've come so far. And we're still working on this thing because we're always working on the next difficult thing. But we've made some big changes along the way. Yeah, that's such a good sign. Because I think if you haven't really noticed it, you've also been clearly managing it and moving through it and progressing without it being this huge moment. You're just learning, growing, moving on to the next step. I think it's a really healthy thing to... You know, I often do it sort of look back to when I was at my absolute lowest and go, oh, my God, I'm nowhere near there now. And it's not, again, like a quick fix or, and now all my problems are solved. But I'm certainly reacting in a very different way and making much better choices than I was, say, 10 years ago. And it is is slow. And, you know, maybe that is one of the reasons why there is still a bit of a stigma. Um, Do you think that everybody would benefit from therapy or that everybody needs it? Uh, I don't think everyone would benefit, partly because uh, some people just don't buy into it at all. Uh, And they are, you know... They still believe that it's, um, you know, it's that kind of old view of therapy that it it's in some way kind of non-medical, which takes away the kind of validity of it in some mm. way, even though it's all sort of evidence-based, the, the ones that you can kind of access on the NHS and things like that. I always say to people, it's not something I can do to you. It's something that I kind of help guide you through. So unless someone buys into something... I mean, even if they take a medication, they don't buy into it. It's less likely to work. Yeah. So um, the power of the brain. Yeah. It's, right. Yeah. So it's less likely to. Um, yeah. So it's not. I don't think it's for everybody, but it's for everybody who has any kind of struggle and and has any vague idea that some level of support could help them through that. Then it's worth it. I mean, I get a lot of questions around: Is that enough? Is my distress enough to seek help? Yeah. Uh, would I meet the criteria for X, Y, or Z? And I always respond to people with, you don't have to meet any criteria for anything to access help. If you feel that you're struggling and you could benefit from support, then go and seek that if you have access to it. And it's a professional's job to help you work out if therapy is going to be helpful for you. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting because sometimes I have you know brilliant, honest chats with my group of mates about all this sorts of sorts of things. And often we'll get into a discussion where one of us will say, oh, you know, no, I'm fine, you know, because blah, blah's got so much more than me going on. And again, we use someone else's story that is the distress is more valid or the severity of the situation seems much more impactful. And we go, I'm fine. I don't need any help. I'm fine. And all we're doing is looking for ways out of not getting help ourselves. So like you say, it doesn't matter like what level of distress or trauma. If you're not feeling great and you want help, it could be a really good way yeah. of moving through that. Yeah, I think, and I think we don't have to. We can do that without pathologizing down days and rough patches mm. and the, the idea of kind of happiness that somehow we're not there until we're happy all the time. Yeah, that it doesn't work no, like that. No, so you can be happy. Like you know, you can have this sort of underlying level of happiness with your life that you know everyone you love is safe and healthy, and you're you know, in a society where you've got a level of control over how you live or, you know, you've got enough access to resources and money, those kind of things, and you're doing something meaningful, but you can still have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month even because of circumstances. That doesn't mean you're not achieving happiness. That's normal life. Whereas I think the sort of discrimination around mental illness caused so much fear of the down days and sadness and anxiety that we then, you know, we wouldn't talk about it. Just don't mention it and pretend it's not happening. Whereas, you know, if we acknowledge that's a part of the human experience, that 
that helps anyway, right? Yeah. If I acknowledge I'm just anxious today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, so looking at that sort of setup, what I think maybe we're all getting the result of therapy, if there is such a thing, So I know it's an ongoing process after you've even had a block of therapy, mm. but... We're getting that wrong because if we're all thinking after I've had therapy, I will be happy. Yeah. That is impossible because like you say, it's ever undulating. Yeah. We could be feeling happy right now doing this chat. But then in an hour when you're stuck on the motorway in traffic and you're stressed out or my kid won't do his homework later on, which is a very normal circumstance in our house, that then that dissipates and there's another emotion. So what should, if there is such a thing, the end goal of therapy be? Peace? contentment uh no I think I think sometimes those maybe don't even I remember I remember a, a supervisor once saying to me that you know the the best outcome of a therapy that, that she'd been to was over a year after therapy so therapy is almost like a I don't know if you do a training course for example immediately after finishing that training course you won't be at your best in using whatever it is you've learned several years later of using those things you'll be even more accomplished than you were at the beginning. So if you, you know, learn certain things in therapy and then you commit to to using those in your everyday life and you commit to continuing your, whether it be recovery or something else, then you will get better at doing that mm. over time. So, you know, the only way is up in that sense. But yeah, I, I think we have to kind of steer away from the idea that the top or the most desirable outcome is I'm going to feel pleasure and joy all the time because actually it's pretty it's a pretty well, dangerous place to be right yeah because that you know when you think about manic episodes for example somebody might feel happy all the time but their life might be falling into pieces around them so yeah and that kind of fruitfulness of of different emotions and the beauty in different emotions you appreciate those moments of happiness more or moments of peace more when you know example i i was away in the, in the mountains with my family last week and height still triggers huge anxiety in me and and so while I appreciated being there and I was happy to be there chosen to be there I still had that level of fear so I was happy while I was also experiencing anxiety and then I appreciated that level of calm I got when we returned to sort of ground level all the more so I I I had such gratitude for that sense of peace I got once the the stress response had calmed down so I'm okay with all of that you know, if I have to live with that sort of stress response being triggered by heights the rest of my life, I won't stop doing that. I will still, you know, because those things make me and my family happy. I yeah, can... you've perfectly described how I feel every time I work. Okay. Which is happy, but slightly anxious. Yeah. Because it feels like there's too much to lose if it goes wrong. Yeah. And because it's publicly consumed there's the anxiety. But like you say, I'm not going to stop doing it. Yeah. They they always sit together. I very rarely do a podcast or a radio show or anything just feeling 
Yeah. Okay. And, and that will be an absolute shocker to so many people because you always come across so calm and chilled <laughs> and relaxed all the time. So I guess probably, I mean, it's your podcast, isn't it? But I'm really interested. I'm sure lots of people are interested to know how you cope with that. I've very much set my own boundaries in terms of knowing what I'm capable of and what levels of anxiety I'm willing to endure. So the level of anxiety I would have doing something like this is something I'd be absolutely fine with because it's normal to me that I would feel like I want to do my best, I want to deliver the best possible outcome for the listener and experience for my guest. And I think if I didn't have that anxiety, I don't know if I'd be able to do that for some reason. Yeah. But doing something like a live radio show, which I used to do without... I used to literally be like shopping on Zara doing a link. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I'd be loving it, but I'd also be trying to buy some boots. I'd be so <laughs> relaxed, unbelievably. And due to stuff that went down in my own life, the thought of doing that now is like, I absolutely have a PTSD response to even thinking about going in a radio studio. I will not do it at this point in time. I might down the line. So I very much created my own world where, okay, I feel happy and I can manage this level of anxiety. But when it goes into panic attacks, insomnia, no thank you. I'm not even interested in trying to combat that at the moment. I want to feel sort of, I don't know, as balanced as I possibly can, but still pushing myself. So I think I've, yeah. I've, I'm very lucky that I have a job where I can monitor that somewhat because sometimes you don't get the chance to, it's not move, there are no moving parts. So I'm, you know, luckily because I'm, I don't know how, 25, six years down the line in this job, yeah. I have got a bit more wiggle room. Whereas if this was the start of my career, I'd have to make a choice, I'd do it or I don't have a job. So I feel very fortunate that I have got some moving parts to play around with. But yeah, I that's why I'm never interested in totally ridding myself of anxiety altogether, like eradicating its existence, because it actually serves me a lot of the time, keeps me on my toes, keeps my brain whirring, yeah. and also I can offer some honesty, which hopefully might resonate. So I think it is really interesting when looking at, don't vilify a whole pool of emotions that you must never feel anxious, sad, ang anger's a big one, because I get angry about things in a full-on way. And actually, it gives me it charges me up, it gives me energy. I, I, I'm motivated to look for new avenues or whatever it might be. So it's it's an interesting one. Yeah, and it's, it's lovely as well that you kind of had that balance around doing something that feels meaningful to you and so challenging it as much as you need, but not... Because there is no use in, you know, facing all of your fears just for the sake of it nope. or, or you know risking your health just for the sake of it and 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 it's you know unless you really really wanted to go back into radio um is there a need to put yourself through that and and it's always around that balance of kind of values and, and the meaning and and it's the same with me and height so it's just a sort of a learning experience from my childhood that's just lingered partly because to treat a phobia you need consistent you know, frequency, you need to do it all the time so that your body kind of habituates to it. So if I had a job at the top of some, you know, high building in London, I can't think of one, then after a few days or a few weeks, I would feel pretty chilled about it. But because I live in a town where the highest building has probably three floors, then um, I just never get exposed to it. And But I challenge it when it means something to me. So 
if my children want to, you know, learn to snowboard or if we're going on holiday and they want to go up that tower in the castle, I've got to use all my skills to keep my stress response low enough that I can manage that. And then it makes me happy that I've challenged myself that I haven't held them back and that we've had a lovely experience as a family. But yeah, it is finding that balance. We don't have to, you know, face every single fear we've ever had just for the sake of it. Yeah. And it's just, it's the most normal human thing to be scared of things. I talk to my kids about it all the time because my son gets really freaked out at night and he's not even sure what he's scared of anymore. So we talk about fear a lot and I, I always sort of, probably they're like yawning with me telling these stories, but I had a, a I've talked about the, on the podcast before, a huge period where I didn't drive on the motorway for like five years. And it was exactly the same feeling as, you know, that live radio of there's just too much to risk here, me being on the motorway in a car. And I did exactly what you're saying. I just kept doing it with someone with me in the car, obviously, and kept exposing myself to it after a five-year break. With I did some therapy that was directly focused on it as well. And I'm now doing it without much anxiety. There might be a little tiny bit that creeps in, and I'm able to sort of shut that bit of my brain off and go, no, we're just driving the car, get on with it, or I'll just talk to someone and I don't even go there sort of cognitively. But I think it is, it, again, people feel worried to sort of talk about this stuff, to admit their fears. And I guess when when does a fear go into a phobia? Like, Would you say, are you phobic of heights? What is the the difference? Uh, yeah, so, you know, fear can be quite generalised, can't it? And and you could have a sort of a generalised anxiety response where your anxiety is triggered by seemingly anything, you know, and, and people can feel like they're always anxious then because it, they might be just as triggered by a social situation as, um, I don't know, a thunderstorm or a dark night or, you know, or, and, and it feels as though they just generally always feel unsafe, whereas phobias tend to be something specific. And, you know, you have all these kind of weird and wonderful names for different phobias of... Um, something very kind of specific so it might be heights or it might be enclosed spaces or you know something like that but and often they're from some sort of learning I mean you know mine is definitely you know a sort of learning experience from early childhood um that if it's not addressed like I said you know with that kind of frequency and intensity it's almost like a physical memory it just sort of lingers um so I always get the response but I now have the skills to be able to manage it I talk in the book about when my uh, he wasn't my husband then, but when Matt and I went to Pisa and we went up the leaning tower of Pisa, we hadn't been together that long, and um, and he kind of produced the ticket or something. Yay! Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I talk about the story of me kind of trying to, you know, oh yeah, let's do it because he bought the tickets, and then getting to the top and just kind of dropping to the floor and kind of just looking down because I didn't want to. I was avoiding looking at how high I was. You know, I was I was avoiding that response. So I I guess I kind of talk about that in terms of what I did wrong. So how I probably reinforced my own fear by the things that I did, by avoiding it and escaping it as soon as I could, that kind of thing. Because often, you know, if you want to address a fear, the idea is to, you know, do it on a regular basis. You don't have to flood yourself with the worst case scenario. You build it up gradually. Uh, It's called graded exposure. And, you know, so if I was to do that now, you know, and go up the top of Pisa, instead of dropping to the floor and panicking and thinking about how the whole thing's going to tip over, I would allow myself to look at the view and I probably gradually get closer and closer to the edge, um, use breathing techniques to kind of keep that stress to a certain level and stay there until my body calmed. Mm. Um, And that's the key is that your brain learns through experience. So if you can stay in a situation until your body pretty much exhausts itself, so it habituates to the situation, then your brain clocks one bit of evidence that, hey, I can be in this situation 
and I survive it. So the next time you then go into that situation, your, your anxiety still goes up, but it's a tiny bit less because you've got this evidence that you can get through it. And so the more you do that, the more that the, the response, you know, the stress response gets less and less each time. And the less you do it, the more of a monster you create because... Yeah. The motorway for me became it's like a battlefield, and it and actually when I got on it, I was like, okay, I'm dry, I'm dry, I'm doing it, I'm, you know. But the the more you ignore it, just the bigger it gets. And then talk to us about um, a new word that I learned from your book, metacognition. Yeah, so it's the sort of main tool that we use in therapy is you know so your brain has the ability to think and have thoughts, but it also has this incredible ability to think about the thoughts that it's having. And I guess that's what we're doing now, right? We're, we're talking about experiences and, and that's what you do in therapy is, you know, you look at, okay, here's the feeling. What, what are you feeling right now? And what are the thoughts that are going with that? And where do you feel that in your body? So you're kind of stepping back from your experience and observing it. And it's by doing that that you get to see it for what it is. And then you get choices to behave or act based on, you know, other knowledge or hindsight and awareness rather than maybe impulsively or just in response to your emotion. How do you work with people that have no self-awareness, which I'm sure I, I know people like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> what do you do in that circumstance? Because I think self-awareness seems like it's the first step in then being able to make a different choice, like knowing what you're doing and seeing how you're reacting to situations. Yeah, it can be really gradual, actually. You know, so... Um, uh, I don't know if you know, but kind of in, in CBT, for example, in cognitive behaviour therapy, they'll often do a really simple formulation where they draw a cross on the page and you've got your thoughts, your emotional experience, your physical sensations, and then your behaviour. So what you do or don't do. And they're all part of your experience, but they're like weaves in a basket. So, you know, they're all linked up and influencing each other, but you don't necessarily experience them separately or notice them separately. You experience the basket, right? I've just got this experience. And some people are really aware of the physical sensations, but don't necessarily have words for the emotional experience just because they never have, right? Mm. Maybe it just wasn't taught to them. Or maybe they're not really aware of the thoughts that they have. Or some people are more aware of the thoughts and don't really are not in touch with their bodies. So, um, you know, a lot of therapy will be building up that awareness of, okay, when you notice your heart feels like it's going to explode what are you thinking? What are the thoughts that came before that? Or, you know, what emotions are there? And and so it's really sort of gradual. But again, it requires a person to be willing to look into that and, and expand that awareness. Another word that we will hear all the time, and I think we hear it so much now, it's become vague, is mindfulness. What would your definition of that be? And how would you suggest somebody uses it to feel less anxious or to lift their mood etc yeah and you know with mindfulness I um I think I I think I include this in the book actually is um when I was doing my clinical training and there was a group of maybe kind of 18 of us I think it was and uh these two trainers came in to to give us our sort of introduction to mindfulness and it's a part of the core learning so we had to do it and you would think that a bunch of trainee clinical psychologists would be really open-minded and really kind of willing to learn and the room was full of giggles and messing around and like and I genuinely had that thought of how on earth am I going to teach somebody this in a room without just how cringe like oh god this is going to be awful and who's really going to find this beneficial what is this going to do you know and I had all of those kind of cynical thoughts and and it was only through practicing it because I had to and because I wanted to do the job really well that I got that moment of ah okay 
this is it. And and I think you have to kind of leave behind any stereotypes that put you off. So this idea that you have to be sat in front of a tree with some candles and, you know, crossing your legs and humming or anything like that. You don't really have to do that at all. My The sort of first most effective mindfulness session I had was when I was out running, actually, and I was really stressed. It was exam season. Uh, I, I, I probably went out for a run just to get away from the desk. And um, and I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm going to just try and, and focus on the sound of my feet on the gravel. So I'm running through the forest. And my mind would constantly go off to, oh, I've got to do that email. I've got to do that assignment. Oh, that one, oh maybe I'm going to fail that one. And but every time my mind went off, I just noticed where it had gone and I drew it back to the sound of my feet on the gravel. And I probably did that, you know, 2,000 times while I was jogging. And it wasn't until the end of the run that I kind of thought, oh, yeah, actually, what I've collected there is all these little moments of being present. And not, you know, I didn't try to complete my assignment while I was jogging and I was aware of the space around me. I was present and I was also aware of where my mind went to and the feelings that that brought up when my mind went there. And now I know that I can choose to bring my mind back if I want to. Mm. So it, it's it's really that ability to, you know, it's the metacognition. It's the noticing where your mind's gone and just gently guiding it back. Without criticizing yourself for, you know, some people say, I can't do mindfulness because I can't focus. And you really don't need to be focused. It's the idea of noticing when your mind has gone somewhere and gently guiding it back and doing that again and again and again. Like a little puppy dog. And like you say, it's so interesting to see how your body reacts to that. Because sometimes I'll do little experiments, like I'll go on social media and I'll scroll and then after a minute I'll go, oh, wow, my shoulders are like rocks. Or you feel this thing it doesn't have to be social media but whatever it is or you're looking at your emails versus I'm desperately actively meditating again every day like I know that it works for me and I will give myself every excuse to not do it and if I do 10 minutes I every time I'm like my body feels so much better like everything is looser and like all the bones are where they should be and it's yeah. a really instant interesting experiment to see what your physical reaction is insert maybe it's going on the tube and you feel yourself tense up whatever it's really an interesting experiment yeah. to put yourself through that yeah that sort of awareness that it builds is is incredible and and I so many times I've had people sort of return to therapy six months or a year later say you know everything seems to be going downhill what's going and when you kind of look at it and they'll go oh, I haven't really been meditating for a couple of months. Or maybe I'll start it again. And then things improve. And so it just helps so many people. And to be honest, I don't know of, of everyone, a lot of people don't dive into it and don't commit to it. But of the people that do, and they put it into their life every day, I don't know anyone that hasn't found positive benefit from that. Yeah. Um, My so. husband's just started meditating in a really, like he's all or nothing. And he's every day, every morning, he yep. has seven minutes, very short. Yeah. And it's just totally, it's been a game changer, like completely. And that's why I'm now right. okay, I need to get back on it. He's massively inspired me in that way. What drew you to this line of work? Was there anything in your own sort of upbringing or life that made you think, I need to understand this stuff better? Yeah, do you know, I, I have memories of being a really young, I mean, I don't have these sort of epiphany moments where I said, this is what I've got to do. But now I look back and I see how how it sort of happened really. And that, you know, I remember when I was young, I don't know, maybe six, can't be any more than six or seven, and I would lay in bed awake at night and I would worry about 
all the animals that were out in the cold at night and what they were feeling. So I had this kind of like sort of this empathy yeah. and this compassion for, um, I didn't want anyone else to be in distress. And I'm going to worry about that tonight now. I know. <laughs> and the donkeys the and the hedgehogs and the foxes. Yeah, and, and I used to worry about, could they, would they be cold? Yeah. How would they feel about that? I might nip some small blankets. Could I collect them all up? Yeah. And, you know, so, so, so I guess I had that... Um, that sort of intrinsic um, wish to to not let anybody suffer and and to kind of soothe other people, um, but never really thought of anything you know anything of it. And I was a big reader as a kid, and but I always I never read sort of big fantasy type stories. It was always about real people in real lives, normal kind of everyday stuff, and and I was always so fascinated about. Um, you know, how those stories led to certain outcomes and, and what, you know, what made them do things the way that they did them. And then it just so happened that, the, you know, the small school I was at, uh, psychology became an option at the sick form. And, oh, that sounds OK. Let's just try it. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And it was just this deep dive of, yes, OK, can I read more? And then it became the thing that I would read for pleasure as well as for school. And, and so then went to university to do it and... um yeah, I just followed my interests after that. Um, and it is never-ending. Like you can yeah. never yeah. have read all of it or understood. Yeah. It's just a never-ending subject. It's so exciting. Yeah, and I guess if that subject wasn't for you, that would feel awful, right? Oh, God, oh. I'm never going to get to the end of it. But, but it's for the me, best that's, feeling. Yeah, so there's always a new Same. book to, to read. And, there's always like a yeah. million that I don't have time to read. Yeah. Um, so... We all know that therapy is a bloody good idea if you think that you need help in whatever way, whether it's trauma or just everyday coping mechanisms. But we also know the problems are the waiting lists are huge if you're going through the NHS. Yeah. And you could be on a waiting list for months, months and months. And if you can't afford to go private, you might feel dead ended. What would you say the answer is if people are in that conundrum of desperately wanting it, but not yeah. being able to access it? Yeah, I think. It, and it's very real for so many Huge. people. You know, I'm, I'm constantly getting emails and messages, of people saying, you know, what, what can we do? And and it's not ideal, you know, that genuinely if people are able to access private therapy, then then go for it. But realistically, a lot of people can't do that. And that's when things like what you're doing is is an incredible resource for people or being able to buy books and educate yourself or go online and educate yourself for free. You know, YouTube is full of, of that kind of stuff. And, and all of my channels are, you know, my attempt to make things as available as possible um, because you can educate yourself through these things. And But when, you know, for people who are really, really unwell, often it's people around them who are saying, what can we do to support someone? And then it's a, there's a whole different ballgame then because if somebody is really poorly and not able to, you know, it's, that's not easy. If you're, if you're at a really dark place, to even open a book and read one page is a huge task. So it's it's not okay the way that things are at the moment and that there's a whole... A huge group of people who are just being neglected by the system. Yeah. Yeah. I know. What the fuck are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get start campaigning. And I know. <laughs> that worries me because, you know, there just isn't enough funding. There aren't enough resources for people. Who, like you say, the ones that are in dire situations. And I'll forever feel lucky that when I was at rock bottom, I... I had a friend that took me to a therapist and we were able to do that. And I will forever be grateful because that was, again, didn't fix everything, still doing all the work, but it was a springboard to, ah, okay, things might be all right. Yeah. And there are so many people that just cannot get that first 
rung of the ladder yeah. to, to get out of the, the depths of despair. And, it, you know, I, I guess that's what, again, we go back to the start of this conversation. We're both trying to do the same sort of thing, offering resources, conversations, access to knowledge, brilliant books like this one that you've got here that you've written it's you know it's it's a starting point but so much needs to be to be done systemically and you know yeah. that's something that you and I sadly can't tackle alone but we'll keep looking yeah, but into But I guess in options. you know in some ways um you know sort of helping to educate people so so even if for people who are you know really poorly and unable to you know access that kind of education or, or put it into place even by educating the people around that person you know community becomes everything so being able to you know a lot of the sort of messages I get from family members saying what can I do how can I support them what about this and and so if those people can educate themselves about the best way to support people then community becomes a huge part of the the solution and and, and that ability to kind of support each other mm. um when when the services just aren't there yeah well, look, just keep doing what you're doing. I love watching your YouTube videos. I loved this book, like millions of other people. And it's been so lovely to have you on Happy Place today. It's been great to be here. Thanks so much. Well, I cannot tell you how much of a relief it was to hear that even Julie, an actual psychologist, sometimes isn't able to do the things she knows would ultimately make her feel better. By the way, I am back onto my meditation daily. I did one this morning before the kids woke up, yes! Which I feel pretty smug about. But you know what? Seriously, I feel better for doing it. Every time I do it, I feel better for doing it. I've just got to stick to it. Dr Julie, massive thanks for coming over. Her book, Why Has Nobody Told Me This Before, is out now. And if you're ever in need of a few more tools, we try to be there to support you as much as possible on our Instagram account, at Happy Place Official. So I really hope we can chat there too. Until next time, huge thanks again to Dr Julie, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you. I love you. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com